Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comic. Please consider subscribing if you haven't done so already. What is unfolding in Iran right now? Here in North America, we see social media videos of people taking to the streets in protest in large numbers. They're chanting for an end to the current regime. Women are throwing off the coverings that the government says they must wear. And the spark that lit the fire? Reports of a young woman who was killed while in police custody, taken in by the morality police for not covering her hair. But the government says in response that they are not going to tolerate these protests, calling them chaos. And while the state places the number of persons killed in protests so far at around 40, according to state media, human rights groups place that number much higher. Now, the protests have swept dozens of cities and seem to pose the greatest threat to the stability of the Iranian Islamic regime in many years. So will things peter out in the days ahead? Will the government crack down like never before? Or will we see regime change? Our guest today is Alareza Jafarzadeh. He's the deputy director of the National Council of Resistance of Iran's U.S. Representative Office, which is an Iranian dissident organization. And he's the author of the book, The Iran Threat. He joins us now from Washington, D.C. Alareza, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Anthony. Pleasure to be on your show. Great to have you on the program. And the first question I want to put to you is just, how would you describe what we're seeing right now in the streets of Iran? If people ask, what, what's going on there right now? What do you tell them? Well, you know, what you see in the Iranian streets all over the country is basically an explosion of the sentiment and the feeling of a nation that has been suppressed for 43 years. And they were just looking for an opportunity to express that. Uh, they desire regime change, uh, the overthrow of the entirety of this regime. No matter uh, how things start, the end goal is actually the issue. Um, as people were chanting, you mentioned, you know, the death of uh, Mahsa Amini, the 22-year-old girl who was brutally murdered while she was uh, in the custody of the, uh, the police, and she wasn't even an activist. Um, yet, and that became actually a trigger, um, and then you saw the explosive uh, state of the society in action. And it's, you know, the protests spread all over the country as we speak. Um, 166 um, uh, cities have been engulfed in the protests since it started. It has um, extended to all 31 provinces of the country. And over, in our estimate, over 300 people have been killed. About 15,000 have been arrested. And the protests continue. Today is the 14th day. Wow. And I know I said in the introduction, and you said it as well, that this young lady, the 22-year-old, she was killed while in police custody. The police, uh, their formal statement is they say, no, she died suffering heart failure. She had a heart attack while she was in the detention center. And I guess these people taking to the streets are just saying, like, we don't buy it. I, I guess, are they accustomed to hearing of people uh, dying in prison in detention centers and get told a, a story like this? Oh, they, you know, they just had a heart attack or what have you. And now people, they, they're too skeptical. Well, you know, this, they, they, the people of Iran know this regime very well, and they lie to their teeth, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what the issue is. Uh, they, uh, they downed a Ukrainian passenger plane uh, with all the passengers on board, and they still don't admit that they have done it, or, you know, they did it purposely, or they want to, you know, 
they're arresting people who were protesting that. Um, you know, there is a massacre in 1988 of 30,000 political prisoners. It's well documented. Some of the most senior officials within the government, including the number two person in the regime at the time in 1988, uh, you know, Hossein Ali Montazeri, uh, protested that, talked about it. Uh, all the, there is audio tape, there is evidence. Yet the regime says, you know, it's uh, uh, you know, it's 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 lie. Um, Sorry, thirty thousand was that the number you yes, said? 30, yes, thirty thousand people it, killed as, as political prisoners. Yes, you know, in nineteen eighty-eight, uh, when the regime was in big trouble at the time, and um, um, Khomeini, the 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 previous supreme leader and the founder of this regime. Uh, wanted to get rid of all those who were opposing uh, the, the government. And there was of, of obviously an, a leading organization, uh, a leading uh, movement that was gaining increasingly momentum and popularity among the population, uh, known as the Mujahideen Akhal or the MEK. They are Muslims, but they're diametrically, their views are diametrically opposite to the Islamic extremist mentality of the Ayatollahs. And Khomeini, then Supreme Leader, issued a fatwa, a religious decree, saying anyone in, who is in any way associated with them and remains steadfast in just basically even supporting them, they should die. And they uh, formed um, a, a committee, because of four people, uh, to um, speak with every single prisoner and ask them one question, if they still believed in that organization or not. Or not. And if they said yes, um, they would end up in the other, you know, hallway, and they they would get executed. One of the members of that four, you know, four, four member committee was Ibrahim Raisi, who is now the president of the Iran regime. So this is a history of of lies of this regime when it comes to their nuclear weapons program, is when it comes to their terrorism, uh, when it comes to human rights issues. To on every single issue, they lie. So it doesn't matter what the regime says or what the, its explanation is, the people know the truth. The people know that that girl, like so many other women and girls uh, in Iran, was murdered. And that's why they're in the streets, not just for her, but for everybody else who's been killed like that. Well, and that was going to be my next question uh, for you. I mean, when they see this incident of this girl being killed, sometimes you have a, a protest that erupts in a country, a city, because something like this happens and it's a uh, it's a rare incident. It's a one-off, and you take to the streets to say, I disapprove of this. It better not happen again. But what you're saying is this incident is just all too common, the experience of, I guess, a girl both being stopped by morality police and then subsequently being injured or being killed. It's just like it's almost like the straw that breaks the camel's back for the people right now. Exactly. That's what, what, what it is exactly, you know, because they have, they, uh, Iran is like the society is like a powder keg. And, um, you know, anything can trigger it. And, and, you know, this isn't the first time that there are protests. There were protests in the past also, and each of them were triggered with something different. Um, but what doesn't change is that, you know, the, uh, the level of um, resentment and the frustration and the anger of the people against the regime, what actually does change is act it actually becomes deeper and deeper and there is more resolution, more desire on the part of the people to end the rule of the Ayatollahs. One of the slogans, among the many slogans that people have been chanting, is that Mahsa is a, is a pretext. Uh, the, uh, it's the entirety of the regime that is the target. 
And, and, and I think that explains very well. And that's why in a matter of hours, the protests turned into, you know, death to Khamenei, death to the dictator, um, you know, death to oppressors, well, be it the Shah, referring to the, you know, the deposed dictator that was uh, overthrown by the people back in 1979. And then they say, you know, death to the oppressor, be it the Shah or the leader, the supreme leader. Uh, so th that's why you can see practically this is a revolution in the making. And, and it's so widespread. It's not in one area. It's not limited to a certain sector of the society. Everybody, except the, you know, the core group that supports and, and maintains the regime in power, everybody else is opposed to the, to the regime and they want change. If you can take us back to basics for a minute, talk about life in Iran, Iranian society, the regime. I know we've established the, the, the murders of political dissidents, the strict rules for women. What also is it about life in Iran right now and what the regime is doing that people don't like? You know, Iran is a, is a large country with 80 uh, plus 85 million, almost a million population. It has a very young um, population, about two-thirds of the population live below uh, the age of, you know, 35. Um, a lot of the people, you know, vast majority of them well-educated, they're like, you know, millions of college-educated kids, and, and, and Iran has a, uh, you know, it's, it's a very resourceful country. It has, it has the, the best strategic location um, uh, there. It has oil, it has you know, oil is not the only resource it has. It has, it's a really, really rich country. It's not a poor country. Um, yet, because of the rule of the Ayatollahs, um, the majority of the Iranian population live below the poverty line. And, and uh, you know, a, a good portion of the society lives below the absolute poverty line. Why? Because the resources of the country, the economy, is controlled by a very small group of people, the mullahs, the ayatollahs, the clerics, um, and those who keep them in power, namely the military that they formed, known as the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, or the IRGC, which was formed right after the revolution in 1979, in parallel to the regular army that was inherited from the time of the Shah. And, and that's why people see, like, every day they get poorer, and then every day these, you know, rich mullahs, they, they dominate everything. And then in order to keep the, the divide, uh, they, they suppress them more. They, you know, they dominate uh, everyone by sheer repression. And then they have this Islamic extremist ideology that they want to impose on everybody else. You know, the, a vast majority of Iranian population are Muslims, but they're not Islamic extremists. They're not fundamentalists. Um, uh, you know, except those who are ruling. That's why this deep divide between the people and, and the regime is, uh, is actually what's causing all of these things. And, and, and the, this gap cannot be closed until the Ayatollahs are overthrown. We'll be back with more full comment in just a moment. Alareza, what are the specific requests of the protesters on the ground right now? I know you said of the importance for some people of overthrowing the regime, lots of people chanting death to the dictator. Is it is it really that that raw energy and emotion, or are there some other specific political requests that are coming forward right now? You know, if you look at the, uh, the trend of the protests uh, in Iran, there were many occasions that the 
requests of the protesters were limited to a certain subject. For instance, back in 2009, there was, you know, presidential elections, there was a dispute, and then some people poured into the streets asking, like, where is my vote? And they believed that, you know, their candidate should have won rather than the one that was declared. Um, And later on, they were, you know, back in 2017, actually the protests started with the rise of the price of, uh, of chicken. And, and people protested that and talking about the, the level of inflation, the economic hardship, uh, wanting the government to do certain take certain steps to, to resolve it. In 2019, in November 2019, overnight the regime raised the price of gasoline three times higher. And, you know, that triggered a protest. Uh, but this time, it's none of those things. It's about, like, the whole thing. People feel it doesn't matter what the problem is, whether you're a a teacher, you're a worker, you're a student, you're a woman, uh, you know, all the problems that the the people are feeling, are seeing and and sensing it, that there's only one solution for it, and that's change. And and I think that's the very important uh, characteristic of this round of protests that is so focused. Look at the slogans. it's, it's entirely focused on the supreme leader himself, you know, Ali Khamenei, um, and, you know, the whole dictatorship, the whole system that is a, a theocracy, and then rejecting any form of dictatorship, you know, whether the, the past dictatorship of the Shah, which is, you know, long ago, but, but right now. And, and that's why uh, I, I think uh, th- this really stands out. And, and also the other characteristic that, that catches your eye if you look at the video clips um, you see a, a very large participation of women, uh, mm. not just you know in pro, in participating in the protests, but they're taking a leadership role. They are like you know right in the forefront. They are the ones who dare the state security forces, and uh, they have no fear. And, and, and the, that, there are men supporting them. There are men behind the women saying yes, take absolutely. the leadership role. Yes, absolutely. Um, because you know. And the reason is is that because, you know, it didn't just happen overnight because, like, you know, one person got killed or, or, or there were new laws or anything like that. There are 40-plus years of the resistance um, against this regime, and there is organized uh, force um, fighting the Ayatollahs, opposing them. You know, the, the main opposition movement, the Mujahideen Khalimendi, the MEK, um, is um, you know women play a very very important role in that in this movement in the past uh, thirty plus years all of the key members of their leadership are women and then they are part of the, a parliament in exile called the National Council of Resistance of Iran you know we are there that that the, the office of the NCRI in Washington um, majority of the members of this parliament in exile are women. It's headed by a woman, Mrs. Mariam Rajavi. Um, so when you have in a country which is whose ideology is based on misogyny, you have a movement that is opposing it, um, that is fully respectful of the right of women, and they have women in the leadership, no matter how much the regime suppresses the population. This movement has has been able to create a culture a tradition and to show the women, to show the men that this is the right way to do it. And, and, and the misogyny that the Ayatollahs are 
exerting on the population um, is diametrically opposed to what this movement is offering to society and that's why the society picks it up and that's why you see this very large extensive participation of of women and and you know and and there's also I, I mentioned the organized resistance you know inside Iran you if you look at the, the tapes you see that it's not that you know people don't know what they're doing you know they're they're so organized they they know exactly how to confront the revolutionary guards how to plan things how to ensure continuity you know in 2019 um, even though the regime killed 1500 people but in a, with about two or three days they managed to crush the um, uh, the uprisings this time this is the 14th day as we're speaking right now it's still going on uh, so that shows that you know the the momentum is on our side um, the uh, organizational capabilities of this movement has has really been elevated and uh, we're a lot more hopeful than we have ever been to see change wow and what is your indication of how the regime is feeling right now because to your earlier point the person who is now president was a part of these these death squads approving the deaths of what was it 30,000 individuals so this is clearly a leader who at least back then was not sheepish about about murdering his own citizens um, they've got to be thinking of how aggressive they should be in their response. Well, that's a, an, a, an excellent point you raise because, um, honestly speaking, when the uh, the new round of protests um, in the past few years that started like in late 2017, early 2018 started, the Supreme Leader Khamenei felt, okay, well, you know, there's trouble coming and these demonstrations are expanding, they're continuing, uh, we've got to, you know, do something about it. Uh, well, there were two ways he could resolve it. He could, you know, uh, comply with the demands of the population in terms of the economy, in terms of everything, uh, or just to bring more repression, which he chose the second one. So he decided to install the most radical elements in the uh, highest positions within the regime, give even more authority to the IRGC or the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, both in terms of the economy, but also, you know, the things that they run. And uh, when the time came for the presidential elections last year, um, Khamenei handpicked Ebrahim um, Raisi, the guy who, you know, eventually became president, because he thought exactly as you said, this is the guy that is going to leave no mercy to the population. This is the guy that can ensure that those protests will not restart. And, you know, he's going to frighten everyone. And that was the whole purpose behind Raisi. You know, Raisi had no experience of running anything since the age of 19. Um, you know, he was like the deputy prosecutor of Karaj, which is not a small town. It's the fourth most populated city in Iran. At the age of 20, he became the prosecutor. And in his 20s, you know, he was sitting on the death commission. All his life was killing people. He doesn't know how to run anything. Um, uh, yet, they install him as the president, hoping that this will prevent the restart of the protests. And now look what we are seeing. Uh, the, it, it's, it's, a, it's a lot deeper level of anger by the people against the regime, the fear factor is gone. That's why I think, you know, that's an important indication that the plan of the supreme leader of the regime has badly failed so far. It doesn't mean that they're not going to kill more people, you know, going forward. They've already killed over 300. Um, that based on our information, the actual figures, as you said earlier, could be a lot higher. 
but I think they have a, a very difficult time this time in dealing with this population. Uh, the ability of the regime to suppress people and deal with them the way they were dealing before has become more limited now. Um, they're running thin uh, in terms of their forces. Um, you know, in Tehran, the capital, two days ago, there were 30 different locations in the capital that were simultaneously, you know, protests as going on. Uh, what are you going to do with it? You can't, they can't consolidate their forces and attack one place. They can't bring in forces from other cities because there are protests going on in those cities as well. And that's why it's a dilemma for the regime. And, you know, and that's why, we, you know, we're, we're a lot more hopeful, but also we have to be very uh, cognizant of the tactics the regime may use. Speaking of tactics, what are the tactics the protesters are using to be so organized? You talked about the planning that's involved. I know in Iran they would prefer that internet, social media, text messages not be uh, used and as widely available for this sort of stuff. What is the role that that technology is playing or, or is not playing right now in terms of how they're getting the message out there and how the regime might want to try and clamp down on that? Right. Well, that's a, that's a great question. You know, um, uh, before getting into levels of communications, you know, uh, which is a very important factor, uh, you, to bring about change, you need to have people on the ground and you need to be able to practically um, uh, be able to organize them, to have, you know, people taking the lead. Uh, and, and, you know, nothing can happen by itself, especially when you want to uh, shape a revolution against the worst, the most horrific uh, theocracy in the history of our country. Um, so that's why since a few years ago, the main opposition, the ABK, they started forming uh, what they called resistance units. Um, these are not clandestine, you know, guerrilla groups or anything like that. These are people, you know, who um, operate, you know, in their own profession. They're like students. Uh, workers, whatever they are, um, but they um, they form them in these cells of like you know two or three or four people each of them, and they work together. And uh, their their role is to uh, break the fear of the population, to uh, hit the symbols of authority of the regime. For instance, everywhere you go, there are posters of the Supreme Leader Khamenei or the terror master that was killed, you know, uh, Qasem Soleimani. So what these um, resistance were doing, especially since 2014, that's about um, eight years, they were just burning those pictures, tearing down those posters. So when people walk around, they see a lot of those burnt pictures. What, what it does, it just shows the population, well, you know, this regime has a lot of people who are opposed to it, um, and it cannot protect everything. And then they, they erected like the statue of these regime leaders in the main, sta main squares. They would go and, and destroy those, sta those, those statues. So over the years, they built uh, this, this structure, this network, and they started expanding it. And that's why when these protests started, um, you know, this time in September, it was really the, the main role was with these resistance units um, that were just ensuring that the messaging is correct, you, you stay on the message, and then you don't run, run away, you don't lose the opportunity, you seize the moment, you confront the revolutionary guards, uh, you, you decide, okay, what do we do now, you know, which part that you, you're going to attack, which, where you're going to lead your, you know, you ensure continuity of these protests. And that's exactly what has happened. Now, in terms of communications, 
um, it's crucial uh, because you know if you can't communicate, then then everything will be disrupted. One of the uh, several tools that I've been using um, in terms of social media, one of them is an application called Telegram, which you right. know some people may be familiar or may not be familiar. It's, it's sort of like a combination of of text and 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 you know you can you can you can actually. Uh, send uh, video clips. You can send pictures. You can stay, do messaging. But the good thing about it is that it's you know end-to-end -end encrypted. Um, however, you know the regime wanted them to have their servers in Iran, so this way they could penetrate. Uh. Uh, they didn't accept that, so they have no servers in Iran. What the regime does, they block Telegram. And then you know there are other tools that uh, you know similar other social media tools that similar to that. Um, but um, but that are encrypted. But what they did, they, the regime basically shut down the internet. Uh, this way, they can you know cut off the communications. But you cannot shut the entire internet because their own operation is based on the internet. Uh, you can do it you know in certain areas. You can do it in few hours. But you cannot shut down the internet for the entire time in the entire country. So what the regime has done, and that's what they did in 2019, and what they're doing right now, in certain areas of Tehran, when they, they know there is protest going on, they immediately shut down the internet, and and that makes it very difficult for communication. But people are are, are learning, you know, how to go around it. And and recently, um, Elon Musk announced that you know he's going to uh, provide his uh, Starlink, um, you know, internet access. Uh, uh, you know, it may take a while before they can actually provide it to the um, to the activists uh, inside Iran. But that's that's a challenge. But so far, we've been able to to find ways to overcome that. Speaking about providing support from America and from other countries, I know during past uprisings just a few years ago, there was I think hope and and energy that there would be greater success and that more people would come and support. I know when we're watching stories of, of turmoil around the world and, and human rights abuses from, from regimes on their own people, there's often talk about, about getting involved to some degree, intervening, offering support. What should be happening in that regard? How should other countries be, be thinking about this and just regular folks watching these atrocities, hearing reports of, of people being killed by their own government? What should they call on their governments to do? Well, you know, uh, the, the first and most important factor is that you know each government should understand that this is not business as usual you cannot just you know uh, deal with this regime as though yeah they have been in power 43 years and they may be in power another 43 years so let's just you know continue our relationship with the ayatollahs no this regime is is hated by its own population not by, by a small portion of the population by the vast majority of the population uh, it's illegitimate. It's repressive. It's it's the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. There is no justification whatsoever to have any kind of dealings with this regime that would benefit it. That's number one. Um, second, if that's the case, then then you cannot have like separating the issues, saying okay, we put out a statement condemning the human rights violations in Iran, but we offer. You know, negotiations and dialogue on other matters. We're we're going to relieve sanctions. We're going to provide them money and resources. We're going to have business, and because the business in Iran is predominantly controlled by the Revolutionary Guards, whatever you do that benefits the regime, 
directly benefits the repressive forces. Whatever money that goes into Iran, it ends up with the Revolutionary Guards. You don't want to do that at, at, at this time. And third, um, there has to be uh, support for the people on the ground. And when I say support, I'm not talking about boots on the ground or even appropriating money or anything of that nature. Uh, the most significant support for the people of Iran is actually uh, political support um, for what they're doing. Um, if they are being confronted by the Revolutionary Guards, they, they, you know, they uh, try to push them back, they, they're doing actions based on self-defense, that has to be supported by the outside world. Um, there has to be unequivocal statements by the governments, whether it's Canada, whether it's the United States, whether it's you know, members of the European Union, that the Iranian people have the right to overthrow the regime. Their resistance, their opposition, their fight against this regime is actually a legitimate fight, and it must be supported. The same way that you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine, the whole world came lined up and supported Ukraine, saying, you know, give them whatever they need. Um, even, you know, members of their, their own parliament in Ukraine were just taking up arms, women, you know, taking up arms and defending themselves, and everybody else supported that. Um, this should be the case in the case of Iran. You know, these young people uh, who are confronting with bare hand um, against the Revolutionary Guards, they need to be supported, and, and you know, whatever the, the form of resistance takes up in the future, depending on what the regime does, all of that needs to be to, to be supported, and of course, one other way to help them, you know, support them in addition to the political statements and their support is actually give them access for communications, you know, like the internet. Uh, that that's an important uh, element. Um, every single uh, person that the regime kills, it has to pay the price for it. You cannot allow them to kill, you know, several hundred people, and then after a while put out a statement, you know, asking the regime to respect human rights. That's not enough. You have to be very specific. You have to target them. The regime represents, cannot represent the, the, the country anywhere in the world. No forums, no international forums, no athletic forums, nothing. The same way that, you know, a lot of countries are, are treating Russia, for instance, like that, right. or they treated apartheid, you know, in South Africa. That's the tactic they need to use. There's a bit of a minor controversy in Canada right now in regards to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. I want to get your thoughts on this. A number of years ago, 10 years ago, the former conservative government designated the Al-Quds Force a terrorist organization, which, as you know, is a branch of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, there was a debate about whether the whole IRGC should be made a terror organization here. And we did have a vote in the House of Commons, and pretty much everybody voted for it. And it passed a majority, even some of the liberal government. But Justin Trudeau's government has never designated it, and even now is saying, well, no, we can't really. It's just kind of up to the security agency. We can't tell them how to do their job, so you know, maybe they'll do it. And you're like, well, okay, they haven't done it yet. And also, like, let's be honest, that's not true. I think you can really push them to do it if you want. So it's this odd situation where people think it should be done, but it's still not being done. What do you think of all of that? And, and should we be doing this? Would it be a meaningful thing? I think it's a meaningful thing to designate the IRGC, the Minister of Intelligence, the Quds Force, all of these repressive agencies of the Iran regime as terrorists, uh, you know, very clearly without even thinking about uh, any of the consequences. 
because you you really want to send a strong signal to the regime that there is a price to pay. And I know those who refuse to designate IRGC as terrorists, they're thinking about economic ties with Iran. They're thinking, okay, a lot of those right. institutions are controlled by the Revolutionary Guard, so this, this will disrupt some of their economic dealings. Well, that's exactly what you should be doing. The whole purpose of the designation is to make the designated entity pay the price. And, and if the entire economy is predominantly controlled by the Revolutionary Guards against the population, uh, you know, why don't, why don't you want to <laughs> designate them as, as terrorists and deprive them from the resources that they're going to use? And by the way, where does the money end up? Uh, it doesn't end up, you know, in the pocket of the people of Iran. The money goes to Syria, to Lebanon, to Yemen, you know, to funding those proxy groups um, in, um, in Iraq and, and, and elsewhere. Um, and that's why, I, you know, I think everywhere, not just Canada, every country in the world should designate um, the IRGC and all of the other entities associated with it as terrorists. A really important conversation. And Alareza, we thank you so much for informing us of everything that's going on on the ground and the international perspective. We've really appreciated your insights today. Thank you so much. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.